morning, everybody. Hello. Please do sit down. Hello. It's lovely to be with you. I hope you're doing all right. My Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, I hope you've had a great Christmas and New Year. Do you want to hear my two favourite Christmas cracker jokes? Not so much. Simon's less keen. Miserable. Miserable. In that case, yes, I'm going to tell you, Simon. Like it or not, why doesn't Santa need to go to hospital? Because he has private elf care. Yeah, I know. And my personal favourite was, why was the baguette in a cage in the zoo? Because it was bred in captivity. Yes, you're welcome. It's, yeah, it, d- it does get better from there, it, honestly. Well, I hope you're doing all right. Um, I've uh, had some New Year's resolutions, uh, just so you know. So I've got a little bit of a reputation around here from doing some dodgy DIY in dangerous situations. My, I've turned over a new leaf. My New Year's resolution is that I'm no longer going to be doing dangerous DIY I'm going to get my children to do it instead. That's working out much better for me. So I've got a photo here of Noah. This is Noah just trimming our tree. (laughs) Watch and learn, people. Watch and learn. So health and safety third, as we always say in our family. So that's us. I hope you're doing all right. Um, Well, Christmas is now done and dusted, isn't it? There are no more mince pies left. Um, The Christmas tree is wilted in the living room, and the smell of sprouts has finally dissipated from the house. And we're headed into 2019, and I wonder how you're feeling about that. I imagine for some of us here this morning, you're quite excited. Uh, 2019 is full of promise. Maybe there's going to be some new opportunities, chance to travel or do new things. And so for you, 2019, yeah, you're feeling upbeat and excited. Meanwhile, I'm aware that for others of us in a crowd this size, we're going to feel a bit daunted uh, at the prospect of 2019. Tomorrow, many of us will go back to work or college or uni or wherever we're headed And for us, there's some uncertainty. Maybe our job situation isn't as stable as it used to be. Uh, Perhaps there's some financial insecurities. For many of us, um, we know what it is to have relationships that are under strain, be that in the workplace or or in home life or wider family. Meanwhile, for others of us, um, we're facing health challenges or the people that we love are facing health challenges. And so we're entering 2019 with a sense of trepidation and a bit daunting. And then, of course, for every single one of us this year, there's Brexit, Um, prayer will be available at the end. We're training up a whole ministry team around Brexit. (laughs) So there's different uncertainties around the room as we head into 2019. Uh, 2013, this is... If you're watching online, this is an old talk that we've recycled and just playing again. So 2019, I do know which year it is. Um, And... uh, And what I want to do as we head into 2019 is I'd like to look at a message of hope, because I feel like a little bit of hope would probably be necessary this morning. That would be in order. And so I want to look at the end of the biblical story in order to give us hope for the year ahead and even beyond, no matter what circumstances we're facing. The reason for that is what we believe about the future shapes the way that we live now, doesn't it? So, for instance, if I said to you that uh, this Friday morning coming, uh, 9 a.m., you stand to inherit 10 million pounds from a distant relative, that would shape the way that you live on Monday morning, wouldn't it? Many of you would go in and quit your job, wouldn't you? Let's be honest. I never like working here. I'm off, you know? (laughs) Meanwhile, if I change the scenario a little bit, and uh, instead on Friday morning, you knew that you needed to pay a 10,000 pounds tax bill, that would change your week a little bit, wouldn't it? Some of you would flee the country, wouldn't you? There's a sense of anxiety about that. So what you believe and know about the future shapes the way that you behave and live now. So I want to take a look at a passage this morning from the book of Revelation, um, which talks 
about a little glimpse, really, of what the future looks like for believers, those people who believe and follow Jesus. Uh, for the uninitiated, the um, book of Revelation is the revelation to the Apostle John, who's on the island of Patmos, which was like a penal colony, so he's placed there uh, by the emperor. And uh, it's uh, written um, at a time of great uncertainty for the church, so the people are undergoing immense persecution, people are being fed to wild animals in the arena, um, there's uh, some Christians being crucified, terrible, terrible persecution going on. And it's, it's a book full of picture language and prophetic symmetry. So it dates back and links back to books like Daniel and Isaiah. And in there you'll find pictures of beasts and dragons and trumpets and bowls of wrath and Babylon and all these different kind of references. And because of all of that kind of imagery, uh, it can be a difficult book to understand. And generally when it comes to the book of Revelation, we make two different errors. Uh, first error is often that people will see things in the book that aren't actually there. Uh, and the risk is that we read it through the lens of our own time and place and unwittingly sometimes place our own interpretation on events, not understanding the context. So during the time of the Crusades and the Reformation and during the World Wars, uh, people would view it through a certain lens and try and see different, different items and, and themes throughout it. In our own modern day, people will see barcodes in there and uh, references to the economic union and nuclear winter and all these different things. So we, we see it through our own lens. But the second equal and opposite error, really, is that because it seems a bit tricky, we just don't read it at all. Uh, so what we do is we stick with our favorite passages and occasionally dip into the Psalms, and we read things that make us feel good and we understand. But the difficulty with that is we don't end up with a balanced diet. 2 Timothy says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore useful for our training and instruction. So my advice to you would be, yes, read the book of Revelation, just like every other book in the Bible. But perhaps do so with the aid of a good commentary. Um, I've been reading this book recently. This is from a series called Straight to the Heart by a great author called Phil Moore. He's done a number of commentaries on different books of the Bible. Just like three or four pages to a chapter, very accessible, very easy to understand and digest, and demystifies much of the book of Revelation. So maybe get hold of it that way. And then all the while, whenever you're reading Revelation or any other difficult book of the Bible for that matter, realize what the focal point is. You see, the, the focal point of the book of Revelation isn't uh, beasts and dragons and Babylon. The focal point of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. You have the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. 19 of them refer to the throne room of God and Jesus on the center of the throne, saying that everything else in all of humanity orbits around who Jesus is. So above all else, it's saying that Jesus reigns supreme. So if you come across something on the internet or whatever, an interpretation of revelation that leads you to a point of some anxiety or concern about the future, I'd suggest to you that's probably not the right interpretation. The book is written to reassure us that God's on the throne and in control. So that's just a little bit of background to the book. We're going to read just five short verses uh, from chapter 21. I've got it coming up on the screen, so you can look at it in your own Bibles if you want, scroll through it on your phone. But let's read it through together. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Apostle John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's a reference to the church there, the bride. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4 is beautiful. It says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why don't I just very briefly pray for us? Pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and just settle in this room? Pray, Father, would these words come alive to us? Would you bring your sense of uh, uh, perspective on the future? Would you impart faith? Father, would you deposit courage in our hearts for 2019 as we feed on your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. So what I very want, briefly want to do this morning is I want to make just a few observations about the passage and then leave us with a couple of implications to help us live out 2019 together. So first of all, let's get to the big stuff because I know this might well have concerned many of you as we read through the passage together. Don't know if you saw it in verse 1 there of chapter 21. Uh, the, the author writes there, there will no longer be any sea. Now, I know that will disturb many people in this room because you might be sat there thinking, I really like the seaside. Will there be no seaside in heaven? And I know that will be concerned to you because in my experience, the King's Arms is almost exclusively populated by frustrated hill walkers and people who love the beach. Is that right? They're just all around. Ali Green, I know, is one of them. Phil Cox is another. Uh, people who, who love... Bedford, who love the King's Arms, love it here, but think to themselves, it would be just so much better if we could take the King's Arms and move it to Cornwall. You know, if we could just, if we could just, or maybe the Lake District or North Norfolk, if we could just move it, then everything would be perfect. Does this then mean that those of us who feel that way, not only will we have to live in landlocked Bedford for the rest of our lives on planet Earth, but heaven means that there'll be no seaside there. Is that what it means? Because I know some of you are concerned. Well, let me try and put your minds at rest, all right? I think the most likely interpretation of this is that the sea referenced here is, is the Mediterranean. And the Jewish people, uh, with the best will in the world, weren't the, the best seafaring nation around. Uh, other nations like the Phoenicians were very strong on that. But the, to the Jewish people, the sea represented a place of uncertainty, of turmoil, and of danger. Not only that, but in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation... We see uh, this depiction of evil, the beast, and it rises out of the sea. So the sea becomes a place, a source of evil. So you put the two kind of things together. What is, what is the writer wanting to communicate to us here? It's saying that in the, in the end, when all is said and done, when Jesus has won his victory, there will be an end to evil, and there will be an end to uncertainty and turmoil. But not only that, you won't even be able to find the source of evil. You won't even know where it comes from because that has been wiped away. That's just how complete Jesus' victory will be. Shorthand, it's telling us that God wins. And it's there as a reassurance, not as a concern that we won't be able to go to the seaside. It's saying that God is victorious and dominates over everything. Um, I watched a movie the other day. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Skyscraper, uh, starring The Rock. Dwayne Johnson, no relation. Um, although, although we both do have similar physiques, so I can understand your confusion. 
underneath this shirt, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so the plot is, Dwayne Johnson has his family, and um, the terrorists have taken over a skyscraper uh, where they live. And uh, so it's him fighting the terrorists in the skyscraper. Anybody seen the movie? No, not many of us. I'd say keep it that way. Um, it's not a classic. Um, and you know how sometimes you watch a movie and it's all tense and stressful because you don't know what's going to happen, who's going to win in the end. Uh, this isn't like that. You know, I, I don't want to spoil the plot for you, but he wins. Um, to be honest, I haven't yet seen a movie with Star in the Rock where he doesn't win, have you? So, so you can sit there and you watch, the, you watch the movie and yes, there's tension and there's danger and all these exciting things happen and there's these wild, crazy stunts and everything. But I sit there with peace in my heart, because I know, no matter what happens, at the end of this movie, even though there might be 50 bad guys armed with machine guns, The Rock is going to win. He's going to come through. The contest is over even before it started. Why do I tell you that silly little illustration? It's because knowing that the hero is going to win enables you to enjoy the journey. You, you, you can just relax and enjoy the spectacle of it all because you know what's going to happen in the end. In the same way, Revelation is written to you and I. It's written to you and I to say, no matter what your circumstances this year, no matter how difficult it is for us individually or corporately, Jesus wins in the end. And his victory is total and it's complete. Ephesians 1 uh, speaks of Jesus and, and it, it says that he put all things under his feet. Why does it say that? Well, it's a reference back to ancient times where one king would fight against another. And the victorious king would get the kings that he'd beaten and get them to come before him. He would sit on his throne. He'd get them to kneel down and he would place his feet on their necks. It was a sign. It was a symbol saying, I've utterly defeated you and I place my foot on your neck. Hebrews tells us that Jesus will one day make all his enemies his footstool. How complete is Jesus' victory over sin, over death, over evil? It's so complete that he can use his enemies as furniture. You know, that is literally what it's saying. So this, these verses to, are communicating to us. It's not yin and yang, there's good versus evil, and they balance one another out. No, 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 no. It's Jesus totally wins the day, and there is no argument, and you cannot even tell where the source of evil has come from. That's what it's communicating to us. And that then influences the way we live now, because Jesus wins hands down. That's the first observation I want to make of this passage. Um, the second thing I want us to know, and I didn't know if you registered this as we read through the passage, but heaven actually comes down to meet planet Earth. The, the nature of this kingdom, the nature of hope is that it is coming down towards us. Not that we will somehow escape planet Earth and go up and live on a cloud and play a harp. That is not your destiny, but rather that heaven will come down and transform the world that we live in. Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come, because that's what's going to happen in the end. God's kingdom will come all around us. I don't know where you're at, whether this morning you would say you're a believer, or you're not a believer, or you've got doubts about your faith. But we need to recognize that every other faith, every other religion, every other worldview says this. It says, go and try and find God. Other religions will have prophets who say, go and Try and do this to seek God and try and find God. Go on this pilgrimage or go and live by these moral standards or accumulate wealth or experiences or try and find God within yourself, whatever that means. 
It's go and do these things in order that you might somehow find God. The difference with Christianity is, is the message isn't go out and find God. The message is don't worry. God's coming to find you. He's Emmanuel. He's come down to be amongst us. He's come to be with us. And as such, the focus of the book of Revelations is not around a physical place, whether it's heaven or earth, but actually around a person and a relationship with that person. It's saying that people are more important than places, that relationships are more important than places. I've got up here on the screen um, a photo of um, our old house uh, that we moved away from uh, 10 years ago. And as I look back, to be honest, I've not once had the desire to go back and revisit my old house, uh, partly because I did quite a lot of DIY there, and, um, <laughs> and not all of it was good, I've got to be honest with you, but mainly because that's not where my family lives anymore. I don't want to go back there because that's not where the people are that I love. In the same way, where we belong isn't nearly as important as who we belong to. It's relationships that are what life's all about. One theologian puts it like this. Rather than think that heaven is the place, rather, wherever the risen Christ is, that is heaven. That is why John's vision in Revelation has heaven coming down here, heralded as, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Jesus is now the one who makes heaven heaven. He is the one who makes it good and beautiful and desirable. He is the one we want. Heaven and earth coming together is about connection and communion. Because after all, life at the end of the day is all about relationships. And it's our relationship with him that makes sense of all the other relationships. That's where we get the affirmation and security we need to love the people around us without restraint. So it's about that connection. It's heaven coming down. And the final observation I want to note here, it's not just about heaven coming down, but it's also about God making everything new again. It's there in verse 1, but also in verse 5. He's making everything new. Not new in the sense of, well, we're going to scrap the old, but actually new as in the sense of being renewed, a sense of being made new again. Uh, just the same way that Paul talks about us be being new creations individually, John is saying everything around us, the whole cosmos, will be made new again. It will be the world as it was always intended to be in the first place. Uh, it's a bit of an inadequate illustration, but um, up here on the screen is a photo of my, our kitchen, the way it used to be. Okay? This is how it used to be. And then sin entered the world, and it looked a bit like this. Um, yeah, we had a flood, and everything had to be stripped out. I'd always promised Emma a kitchen with an island unit, and so she got one there. That's, uh, she was very happy with that. But then it needed to be renewed, and here's how it looks now, after it's been renewed. Just a little bit of DIY. Uh, I had some help. Um, it's the same physical place, but it's been renewed. Do you see what I mean? So it's a new kitchen, but it's the same place. In the same way, God's going to bring everything full circle. What Adam broke, Jesus is in the business of fixing. And that means that even if you're a believer here, not a believer here this morning, I'm sure you'd agree that this world is astounding, it's diverse, it's rich, it's wonderful, but it's also twisted at the same time. So we have beautiful sunsets like the one on the screen now, but we also have to deal with cancer 
and various genetic diseases and evil and injustice in the world. God's saying the world will be the way it's always meant to be. I'm not going to give up on what I created. I'm going to make it new again. And that means that everything that's wrong about the world will one day be made right again. The promise that all those terrible things that have happened, God sees every one of them and will rectify them. And that those terrible things that those Christians went through in the first century will actually seem like light and momentary troubles compared to the glory that awaits them. Theologian put it like this, God is forever making all things new, and on this depends the hope of the world. Paul has spoken of a creation in the lives of men whereby behind the facade of the outer man, subject as it is to weakness and decay, there is being built up in the inner man, daily transfigured into the likeness of Christ. John envisions envisions the same transformation on a cosmic scale. What's happened uh, to us as individuals is going to happen on the macro scale. And it's not just what Jesus will do in the future, it's what he's doing right now. Think of what you see through the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings life, doesn't he? He brings healing, he brings transformation. Like Zacchaeus, his whole heart is transformed and changed. Jesus is in the business of making everything new again. And that includes your life and my life and the lives around us. So those are just some of the observations that we can make of this incredibly rich passage. What are the implications? How should that affect us? How does that change our lives Monday through Friday? Well, the first one is this. The first implication, I think, is this. We can be confident that Jesus is in the process of redeeming everything. Everything around us, everything that happens, Jesus is in the business of making it right again. Um, Last year, towards the end of the year, in October, it was my uh, 50th birthday. And, uh, you know, I shared about it at the front and Reminded people it's not too late to get me a present, stuff like that. Um, and my brother, who lives in Australia, he, he sent me um, a present. He sent me a parcel. He sent me a text to say it was on its way. Only it never actually arrived, uh, which is you know, kind of a, a bit of a disappointment. Anyway, about two weeks later, I was chatting to a guy. I don't think I'd met him before. Forgive me if I had, but I don't think I'd met him before out in the foyer. And I um, was just talking to him, and he'd heard me preach a couple of weeks before. And he said, oh, um, he said... Uh, uh, it was your birthday a few weeks ago, wasn't it? I said, yeah, yeah, it was. And he said, he said uh, your name's Paul Johnson, right? I said, yeah, my name's Paul Johnson. And he said to me, where do you live? It was a little bit of a direct question. So I said, okay, I told him where I live. I gave him the, uh, the house number and the street name and everything. I said, we live in this house number and street in Clapham. And he said, well, I live in the s- street with the same name at the same house number in Wixom's, new estate down the road. He said... Just last week, I had a parcel arrive addressed to Paul Johnson. I think I've got your birthday present. <laughs> and, he, and he did have. He, he had my birthday present arrive at his house. I don't think I'd ever met the guy uh, before. And uh, as I, I got it, I received it. It's a lovely sort of presentation box, and inside are two bottles of wine, one from Australia and one from New Zealand, both of which have significance for me. The places, not the wine, you know. And so, so I, I just knew, you know how sometimes God does something and he just wants to get your attention, yeah? I, I just knew, God, you want to get my attention here. What is it you're wanting to say? What is it you're wanting to do? And so I, I just prayed into it a little bit. And I, I realized as I, pr- as I was praying that if I'm honest, there's still a part of me that feels like some things in my life have not gone according to plan 
and haven't gone my way. And if I'm brutally honest, there's some parts of me where I feel like life's dealt me a bit of a raw deal. And things that I hoped work out haven't. And there's been costly sacrifices behind the scenes and, and challenge and difficulty. And I felt like, if I'm honest, I felt like that's not really been very fair. And I feel like, I feel like I've missed out. That was the feeling as I was praying about it. And I felt God say to me, Paul, I want you to know that I know your address. I know where you live. And if I want to get present to you, you're not going to miss out. The promise was you are not going to miss out on a single thing that I have got for you. And as I say that here this morning, my hunch is I'm not the only one that feels a bit that way. Feels a little bit like, oh, it's just a bit of a raw deal. Did it have to be this hard? Did it have to be this difficult? Why couldn't it have worked out that way? I feel like I've missed out on this opportunity, on that chance. And if that's you, I feel like God had that happen to me in order that I might share it with you. If that's you, would you be really brave? Just like me, I, I wanted to engage with the Holy Spirit on this. Would you be brave as well? If you feel like that's you, you feel like a bit of a raw deal. And as a result, there's just a tendency a little bit towards self-pity like me. If that's you, would you be really courageous in a safe place like this and just raise your hand in the air for me? Just say, like, God, you've had me talk about that for you. Thank you. I just want us to register it for a moment. We're going to pray in a little bit. But I just want you to register. God is speaking and is on your case. And we're going to pray for you and probably for me too as well at the end, because God wants you to know he's got your address and you're not going to miss a thing. So there was that kind of mindset. And as, as I've dwelt on this and realized that Jesus is redeeming everything and everything will get sorted out in the end, it's begun to change my worldview. You see, I used to view all of life in sort of these two categories. Firstly, there are things that have gone well in my life, you know, things that have gone smoothly. Uh, and then there are things that have gone badly, but very often the DIY. But there are things that have gone well and things that have gone badly. And the bad stuff is just, that sucks. It's just rough and that's just the way it is. But actually, as I've dwelt on it and looked at Scripture more, I realize that actually the more biblical way to view things is that there are things that Jesus has redeemed and there are things that he hasn't redeemed yet. Because what's the promise? He will take every bad thing and work it to the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So it's the promises that Jesus hasn't redeemed it, but he will redeem it one day. Just before Christmas, um, I've got two of my children of long-term sickness. And just before Christmas, we had an appointment at an um, orthopedic hospital in London with my daughter, Anna. And uh, she's got scoliosis, and we're in the consultant's room, and they're showing us the, the x-ray, and they're showing the very obvious curvature of her spine. And I'm sat there, and I've got this mix of emotions, because there's disappointment for her that she's having to live with this, and the consequences of that. But equally, at the same time, I'm sitting there thinking what God said to me through the bottles of wine. And I'm saying in my spirit, I'm saying to myself, I'm saying to myself, yes, she has this condition, but God hasn't finished yet. Yes, she has this, but he will one day redeem this. I don't know when that will be. My job is to pray that heaven comes down sooner. But I know even if it's at the end, even if it's into her eternal life, she will not forever have this condition because her new heavenly body will have a straight spine, thank you very much, and she'll be able to do all the things that she longed to do. Yeah. God will fix everything in the end. It's just a question of when. It's not if, it's when. 
And we live under that promise. You see, what I'm wanting us to do, I'm wanting to encourage us as Christians not to live in a kind of super spiritual unreality where we pretend things are better than they are, but actually instead to live with a superior reality that recognizes that the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, is what really matters. Just like when the disciples go go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, it's like the curtain is pulled back on the spiritual realm, and they see things as they truly are. That is the eternal world. And one day, God is going to fix every single darn thing and make it right again over your life, my life, and those that we love. I'm not calling you to live in super spiritual unreality. I'm calling you to live for a superior reality that one day he will redeem everything. And you know, as we do this, as we recognize that, then at that point, we become agents for change in the world that we live in. You see, if you think your future is uncertain and insecure, then you're going to live like that. You're going to try and hold on to things. You're going to be anxious about things. You're going to cling on to money and possessions because I need this to feel safe. But once you realize that you are eternally loved by the kindest, richest, most powerful being in the universe, it kind of helps your outlook a little bit. Then all of a sudden you realize, I don't need to worry about my life and myself quite so much. I'm then freed up to love the people around me. And because of that, we can change the world around us. just want to finish with this story before we, before we close. I heard just recently about um, a young couple who were due to go and plant a church up north, and we've got some connections, loose links with them. And um, they were traveling in a car, I think it was uh, down an A road, and um, a, a drunk driver came the other way, crashed into them, and uh, both instantly killed Uh, The drunk driver was prosecuted and uh, was uh, convicted. But there was was a moment, there was an opportunity where the father of the the killed son, the son that died, got to speak to this drunk driver who was convicted and embraced him and said to him, because Jesus has forgiven me, I now can forgive you. The guy went to prison and when he came out of prison, reconnected with this father again and gave his life to Jesus. Because that father had the eternal perspective, he was able to reach out to even the person that had killed his own son. And all of a sudden, the story of redemption continues through. We're, meant to, we're called to live those kind of generous lives because we know that our future is secure. No matter what 2019 holds, he's got you in the palm of his hand. He's never, ever going to let you go. And he will make every wrong thing right again. That's the kind of people we're called to be as we enter 2019. Why don't we pray together? Would that be all right? Um, if, if you just put, raised your hand a moment ago, and you know that um, your perspective ha- has somewhat been, um, there's just bad stuff happen, and I've had a bit of a raw deal. If that's you, I, would you be brave and just stand to your feet? Because I'm standing. You know, that count me into that. And we're going to pray. Thank you. And I just invite you to, to pray with this prayer under your breath with me. So, Father, I, I repent from thinking that nothing was going to go my way. I repent from believing that I've got a raw deal and you never saw and never noticed. But instead, Father, I choose to accept that you know my address. As Acts 17 says, you ch- you've ordained the times and the places where we live. I accept, Father, that you have good plans for my life. And Father, 
I choose to step away from any self-pity. Any self-pity which, which says, I'm missed, I've missed opportunities and I'm going to miss out. And instead, Father, I choose to accept that you will redeem every single aspect of my life and use it for your purposes and for your good. You're going to take every bad thing and work it to the good of those who love you. And so I choose to live as a son, as a daughter who has God on their side. And I'm looking for the good of how you're going to redeem bad situations. Let me become a a son, a daughter who lives with radical, outrageous, audacious faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're standing, do you want to keep standing? If you're not, do you mind coming to your feet as well? Because the way I felt to end today was um, I felt um, the the Bible says that our words are powerful, effective, that in the tongue is life and death. And I felt that we should make a statement of faith like a flag in the ground as we start 2019. So I've, I've written out just a declaration. A lot of it's just scripture, to be honest, for us to say out loud. You don't have to, but I'd invite you to say it with me. And as we do that, we're saying this is the way we want to live out 2019 as people of redemption and faith and hope. Is that all right? So it's going to come up here on the screen. And why don't we just read it out loud together and then maybe we just pray to close. So Jesus, we declare that you are making all things new. Every wrong situation you will make right. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes and joy will replace mourning. We declare that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we will live 2019 with faith and confidence as ambassadors for Christ, new creation representatives in an old creation world, pulling heaven into every place we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we applaud the Lord for what we will do this year?